As we start, though, uh, today, I thought it might be helpful to consider barriers to knowledge. What prevents us from knowing? What um, scares us, even, about knowing? Uh, the text for this morning is from the book of John, um, but we're skipping ahead, chapter 18, when Jesus faces Pontius Pilate at his trial. And Mel is our scripture reader for today, and we'll be reading John 18, beginning verse 28. Good morning. Uh, hope you can hear me. Our scripture reading for today, it's uh, from John 8, uh, 18, 37, and 38. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so, so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, Is this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered them over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So are you a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness for the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? This is Beck's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for your word. Um, we're thankful for the wisdom in it. Uh, we're thankful for the way it presents Jesus to us, uh, but not just that, the way it presents um, humanity to us. Um, the good and the bad and the confused, um, we find ourselves there. And so we ask for the spirit uh, jesus promised in john that he would send the spirit of truth to guide us into all truth and so we we ask you to do that this morning uh, we can't uh, do this on our own so would you be here in our midst uh, helping us discover what's true we love you and we pray these things in christ's name amen there are a ton of challenges we face as a culture um, and as individuals when it comes to courageous knowing um, and two that come to mind for me this morning are first, the recent explosion of knowledge available to us, so that it's hard to know because there's just so many things to know. And second, our increasing mistrust of that knowledge due to power dynamics, where we're very sensitive to power. And so just thinking about those sort of, uh, feel, like let's feel those challenges for a moment before we move to the text. So first, the information explosion. Um, I'm curious if anybody knows how hot it's going to get today. Is any like weather fiend who like checks the weather every day and knows? 65 <laughs> degrees. Um, that's amazing. Um, uh, inner sunset. Okay. Um, that's right. Yeah. Uh, it's hard for us to fathom this, but 
answering that question with a number instead of a feeling is a relatively new way to talk about the weather. Um, to think in terms of quantity instead of quality. Um, to think uh, facts instead of feelings and experiences and ideas. But numbers are really helpful though because feelings don't always translate. What the weather feels like to Carly may not be the same to me, but hopefully in theory, 64 degrees or 65 degrees is the same for her as it is for me. Um, facts are universal. I read a fascinating, very nerdy essay a few months back in the New Atlantis on the history of factual knowledge. I don't know why I read that, but I did. Um, and it's a funny thing to think about, the history of facts. Um, before reading this article, I would never have thought that facts had a history. Um, that history implies that there was a beginning. There was a before facts and an after facts. It implies that there might be an end. Um, haven't facts just always been around? And the answer, surprisingly, is no. Uh, facts have not always been. It's hard to imagine, but facts as we know them are quite new. Uh, the word itself dates to the late 1500s, and for a long time after that, it was just a curiosity from like quirky natural philosophers who would just record everything. Um, but now we live by facts, like we depend on them. We know the weather. Um, temperatures are no longer based on feeling. Time is no longer based on the position of the sun. I have no idea how I would accurately tell what time it was if I just had to look up at the sky, right? We just pull out our phones and we get an exact answer, an answer that is shared by everyone in the world. Um, I don't anyone old enough to have called the operator for the time? Yeah, I'm, I'm there. Um, old enough and lived in a rural enough place. <laughs> Um, up until the scientific revolution, no one could tell you with any precision what time it was. Um, people didn't know their exact birthdays. Uh, it was hard to know precisely how much something weighed because people used different scales in different places, different weights, different instruments. Uh, there was a French mathematician. He sought to replicate one of Galile Galileo's experiments, and he struggled because he didn't know what an arm's length was. Like, what is an arm's length? Uh, we couldn't have sent the James Webb telescope up based on arm's length. We had to become more precise than that, right? And uh, it wasn't until the 1800s that an international body was formed to establish stuff like that, where nations uh, cooperated. They didn't cooperate in very much, but they cooperated in this, and they had a shared definition for seconds, kilograms, meters, degrees. Uh, it started with just seven units, and now ISO controls 24,000 different standards. Um, this was a triumph, um, the fact of facts. Um, it allowed for better record keeping. It allowed for better shared information, uh, universal application. It allowed scientists to replicate experiments and to improve them, uh, to test them, for companies to engage in mass production. And so you could know that a screw made by this company five years ago would fit a nut made by a company today. Like that is through standardization, through facts, through measurement. Uh, so much that we take for granted comes from this revolutionary perspective on factual information, knowledge as fact. Not only that, there was a philosophical piece to this too because after centuries of violent religious wars, uh, where you had thousands of people dying, nations fighting constantly, facts were finally something we could agree on. We could settle this. After arguing for millennia over the same philosophical questions, facts represented this knowledge that was rid of human error, 
um, or could quickly be sussed out and perfected. Um, that was the hope of science, uh, that we would be able to transcend conflict because we had a language that we could agree on. Uh, John Asconis writes in that article, the rise of facts was the triumph of a certain kind of shared empirical evidence over personal experience, over deduction from preconceived ideas, over some king's decree. Facts stand on their own, free from the vicissitudes of anyone's feelings, reasoning, or power. And truly, the multiplication of factual knowledge has been behind an explosion in human progress. It's mind-blowing how much better our lives are today, uh, materially, than they were 200 years ago, much less 500 years ago, um, when facts were not easily available. Interestingly, though, the title of this article is What Was the Fact? Past tense, what was it? And so you're sort of wondering, like, are facts not still a thing? And they are, but the author points out that factual knowledge has multiplied so much that facts have become data. And that changes how we relate to information, right? When facts were fewer, just having them solidified your claim to knowledge. But now that facts are literally in the trillions, having them makes you feel like you know less. Actually, you know more, but you feel more anxious. There's so much, it's too much information. Uh, he has a great analogy between facts and metal balls. He says, few things feel more immutable, solid, or fixed than a ball of cold, solid steel. But if you have a million of them, a strange thing happens. They will behave like a fluid, sloshing this way and that, sliding underfoot, unpredictable. In the same way and for the same reason, having a small number of facts feels like certainty and understanding. Having a million feels like uncertainty and befuddlement. The facts don't lie, but data sure does. And so what we need is experts to interpret all this data. It used to be that experts were just the people with the facts, but now experts are, experts are the ones with a narrative. And we need a narrative to make sense of all this information, to put it in context, to help us understand it. But that runs us up against our second problem. What's hard about this shift from facts to data is we are simultaneously uh, hyper-attuned to power and suspicious of narratives. We are suspicious of people who try, who weave a story. Um, and that's the second problem. Just when we need the most help handling all this information, we are now far more suspicious of the information we receive. Uh, following Nietzsche and Foucault, we believe that all truth claims are power plays. Uh, many people will think that and operate in that way. This is the climate change debate, right? If we're talking about weather, how am I supposed to navigate that conflict, right? I'm a pastor. I don't know why that is, so I'm not confused about it. Um, the weather service. Um, oh, okay, all right. Um, I'm from Florida. That's okay. Not a problem, Anthony. Um, the weather service literally collects 6.3 billion observations every single day. Someone has to make sense of that. And, but different people using the same data, they're using the exa exact same numbers, they come to different conclusions. Or maybe they are, were worried that they start with a conclusion and since there's so much data, they can cherry pick what they need to support their claim. And the thing is, I don't know 
how could I possibly know? We've learned to be suspicious of narratives and not just science with weather and climate change and COVID and all those sorts of things. With history, did America begin in 1776 or 1619? That's a huge debate in the public square, right? The historical facts are the same, but it depends on who you talk to, how they tell the story, what they emphasize. What is Christian orthodoxy that hits close to home? What is right doctrine? Is right doctrine the doctrine that won because it's true, or is it true because it won? People bring those quandaries like into church, into life. How do we figure it out? And so when it comes to confident knowing, in the face of these two problems, a lot of us can become frozen. First, we have too many facts to deal with, too much information, too much experience. We have access not only to our own experience, but experiences of people across the world, across cultures and nations and ethnicities and times. But then we're far more aware of the power dynamics happening underneath that information. We need an authority, but we're worried that there is no authority that's trustworthy. Even well-meaning authorities are not neutral parties. And so what do we do? What can we actually know? Who can we trust? The Gospel of John is ultimately a book about knowledge. What is the purpose of the Gospel of John? The Apostle tells us plainly, John 20, we've quoted it a dozen times in the past couple months. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by knowing, you may have life in his name. The Bible wants us to know with complete confidence that Jesus is the Christ. And the Apostle John acknowledges that his book only covers a small sampling of the things that Jesus did. Uh, chapter, 20, uh, chapter 21, verse 25, there are also many other things that Jesus did. He says, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so John was dealing with a glut of information about Jesus, but John is claiming to be an authority, an eyewitness, hand-selecting a few events from Jesus' life and weaving a narrative for us. But at the same time, John and Jesus are not ignorant of the other narratives going around of the power plays behind them. And so John portrays the life and work of Jesus and how it plays out in the midst of all kinds of power dynamics. Um, it's, it's very obvious to you when you read, and we've talked about it a lot over the last couple of months, these dynamics are written in a clear and nuanced fashion. Uh, Miroslav Volf writes, during the trial, Jesus is caught in the field of social forces with religious ethnic and political bases, all interested in maintaining and bolstering their power. And the Gospels are, are unique in that way to me for ancient documents because they have such remarkable sociological depth and insight, psychological insight. It, it, you feel like you can get inside the book um, in a really helpful and beautiful and good way, in truth-seeking way. In all the Gospels, the trial of Jesus is, in fact, God's way of putting humanity on trial. You find Jesus is constantly turning the tables, 
Um, Jesus always responds to questions with questions of his own. He rarely answers them directly. Uh, Notice how the accusers and authorities, they're the nervous ones. They're the scheming ones, while Jesus remains calm and clear-eyed and direct. In this way, the trial of Jesus demonstrates Christ's innocence and the world's sinfulness. And so what then does this scene have to do with knowledge and truth today? I think trials are places where truth and power come together, most plainly, right? Um, Trials are supposed to be about discovering what's true, with power then exercised on behalf of truth. So truth is king, and power supports truth. But in Jesus' trial, you have the opposite going on. Both his accusers and his judge could care less about truth, right? Power is king. When Pilate asks in John 18, verse 29, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answer him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. What kind of answer is that? Like, that's not an answer. That's not a truth-giving answer, right? They won't even say what Jesus is accused of. But then later, when Jesus brings up the idea of truth to Pilate, Pilate scoffs. What even is truth? And walks away. Both, again, for both the accusers and the judge, the truth is irrelevant because it works at cross-purposes to their hold on power. The only truth they will recognize is the truth of power. Um, it feels like that is increasingly the cultural and political world we live in, where the only truth we recognize is the truth of power. That's what so many articles are written about. Um, That's what so many insights are written, is identifying the truth of power. And that's perhaps Nietzsche's most famous contribution to our culture, uh, subordinating truth under power. So that truth is just, he just, he thought truth is just a tool for the powerful to remain in power. That's what it's for. Um, Interestingly, the only good thing Nietzsche has to say about the entire New Testament concerns Pilate. Um, He says in the Antichrist, in the whole New Testament, there appears one figure worthy of honor, Pilate, the Roman viceroy. The noble scorn of a Roman enriched the New Testament with the only saying that has any value. And that is at once its criticism and its destruction. What is truth? It's the only good thing that (laughs) Nietzsche has to say about the Bible is Pilate. Um, Well, Nietzsche Nietzsche is both right and wrong here. Uh, Pilate is, of course, not a figure worthy of honor in any way. Um, But he is right that once truth is dismissed, Christ and Christianity will soon be killed. However, Pilate is clearly in this story, a very, very weak character. He was the Roman governor, so technically he's the ultimate authority in this whole scene. He gets to decide what to do, but this is the only time he appears on the scene, and it's clear he's simply a pawn in the Jewish leader's plan to kill Jesus. Pilate influences nothing. He's just a step on the way to what they want to happen. Uh, Throughout the scene, you get the sense that the Jews feel at least equal in power to Pilate. Uh, There's a back and forth between them. They're not lowly before him. So verse 28, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. And Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. 
And so, as was typical of Roman leaders, Pilate is hesitant to involve himself in inner Jewish conflict, especially religious conflict, um, which is why they kind of shade the religious nature of it. They, like, they hold that back um, because they know Pilate won't be interested in that. Um, but the reality is that only the Romans were able to put a man to death, um, so the Jews needed Pilate. Uh, Pilate attempts to maintain the upper hand, uh, to seem in charge, and so he calls Jesus inside to question him uh, privately. This is a private discussion between Pilate and Jesus. Uh, Verse 33, Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And at this point, Pilate really looks like he's being a good judge, right? Trying to gather the facts before killing a man. But Jesus turns the tables on him. He questions him puts Pilate on the stand. He says, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And so he challenges Pilate's authority, his empty authority. He's asking Pilate, are you going to be a man of your own opinion, or are you just going to follow after the opinion of others, be a tool of others? And so Pilate answers defensively, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Pilate tries to assert his independence in the face of Jesus' questioning. But as we continue reading, it's just posturing. Because when you work through the story, it's clear that Pilate, in the end, decides that Jesus is innocent. It's, John says that multiple times, that Pilate believes Jesus is innocent and doesn't deserve to die. But he still puts him to death because of the Jewish pressure. Pilate is not his own man in this story. The truth of power is actually not very powerful. Power turns out to be a very vulnerable, anxious place to find one's truth. Pilate tries not to kill Jesus, uh, to give him a tiny bit of credit. Um, Dante actually puts Pilate outside of hell, like outside the gates of hell with the cowards, um, because... Neither God wants them or God's enemies want them because they couldn't decide. Um, Pilate tries not to kill Jesus in verse 38. Um, After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Which they don't. Then in chapter 19, he tries to just flog Jesus and see if that's enough. Uh, 19 verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate goes out again and says to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus comes out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate says to them, Behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. But what the Jews say next scares Pilate. The Jews answered him, We have a law And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. And so now Pilate learns the nature of the religious conflict. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid because he had spent time with Jesus. 
And so he enters his headquarters again and says to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate says to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? In the book of Luke, we learn that Pilate's wife has had a bad dream about Jesus and pleads with Pilate to have nothing to do with this man. But while Pilate continues to believe throughout that Jesus is innocent, he wonders whether he might be more than just innocent. He might be God. He ought to be released. He ultimately caves in to the demands of the Jewish leaders. And that's because they know that his power is not his own. Uh, John 19, verse 12, From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And so they threatened to go around Pilate. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. And now, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. And so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Pilate felt his hands were tied. He felt he had to kill an innocent man. Uh, One commentator notes how everything Pilate does from there on is an attempt to atone for his wrong and so he puts the inscription on the cross against the Jewish leader's will Jesus of Nazareth king of the Jews even though death by crucifixion could often last for days Pilate grants permission to hasten Jesus's death and then he gives permission for a proper burial to um, Joseph of Arimathea the commentator concludes Um, Alan Culpepper, he says, like other characters caught between the Jews and Jesus, Pilate is a study in the impossibility of compromise, the inevitability of decision, and the consequences of each alternative. In the end, although he seems to glimpse the truth, a decision in Jesus' favor proves too costly for him. In this maneuver to force the reader to a decision regarding Jesus, the evangelist exposes the consequences of attempting to avoid a decision. Pilate represents the futility of attempted compromise. The reader who tries to temporize or escape the gate of indecision will find Pilate as his companion along that path. And so Pilate is not a man of honor. Uh, He is not um, a great man. Um, an uberman like Nietzsche would have him be. Um, It turns out that the truth of power is actually quite weak. The confidence that Nietzsche celebrates is an illusion. Uh, Pilate's bravado is a cover for his insecurity and fear. So when he says, what is truth? He dismisses the question out of hand. He walks away immediately after saying it. He leaves the scene because he can't handle the answer. Pilate thinks he can deflect truth with cool irony and indifference. What does it matter? What does anything matter? Irony feels like freedom, but it's actually hopelessness. 
It's freedom from hope. That's the spirit behind so many of the like sarcastic memes on Instagram that I like <laughs> and think are funny. Um, they deflect, right? They deflect responsibility, accountability, truth, courage, hope. It's why we say it is what it is. None of it matters. What is truth? But Jesus, even just the presence of Jesus, won't let us say none of it matters because if it didn't matter, he wouldn't be here. He would not have died if it did not matter. At the trial with Pilate, Wolf says that Jesus counters the truth of power with the power of truth. First, Jesus contrasts his kingdom with kingdoms like Pilate's. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Pilate wants to know if Jesus is a threat to him, and Jesus is a threat, but not in the way Pilate thinks. Jesus doesn't play the games Pilate and the Jewish leaders are playing. His kingdom is different. It's not power plays and violence. But if not per, for power, though, like what is a kingdom for? Pilate is confused, and Pilate says to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Everyone. This truth, the truth, requires a personal response from Pilate. Um, Kostenberger writes, while it is Jesus who is ostensibly the one being tried here, Jesus' words put the spotlight, at least momentarily, on Pilate. Will he respond to the truth and listen to Jesus, or will he listen to his accusers? In principle, it would be possible for him to listen to Jesus, but responding to Jesus now would mean a radical break with his past, so radical that it is virtually unthinkable. Pilate's past enslaves him and his present is too cluttered with political expediency and compromise to allow the truth to break through. This is the difference between Jesus and Pilate, between the truth of power and the power of truth. For Jesus, kingship, power, is not about bearing arms. It's about bearing witness to the truth. And this is what is so threatening to Pilate's power. Jesus cannot be controlled. Jesus cannot be manipulated. Even more alarming to Pilate, Jesus is not out to control Pilate. He's not just better at the game. He's not going to play the game. He refuses to manipulate Pilate. And this terrifies him. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? I don't forget in this scene that Jesus has been flogged. He is standing there covered in blood. And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it has been given you from above. Talk about power. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Wolf writes, Jesus would rather die witnessing to the truth than live manipulating others by making his own agenda pass as truth. Why? Because the whole process, purpose of his existence is to witness to the truth. 
truth defines his very being. I am the truth, said Jesus in John 14, 6, adding that he also is the life. So the defeat of truth is the defeat of life. The victory of truth is the victory of life. A man dressed in a purple robe with a crown of thorns on his hand, head, a man stripped hanging naked on the cross represents the victory of truth and life, not their defeat. And in the end, Jesus' victory is the one that plays out. And so the Jewish leaders and Pilate, you know, might temporarily uh, emerge from the trial in some sense victorious, but they are fatally wounded. Uh, the Jews persuade Pilate to kill Jesus, but not without abandoning their faith. It's, it's very striking that they say we have no king but Caesar. That is blasphemy for Jews to say. Pilate agrees to condemn a man to die who he believes is innocent, not because he wants to, but because he has to. So both the Jews and Pilate have made concessions. Jesus, on the other hand, has made no concessions. He has not yielded anything, has ultimately lost nothing, and gained everything. What can we learn from this scene in our own relationship with truth? Wolf, uh, who I'm citing a lot, has a, his book, Exclusion and Embrace, has a great chapter that walks slowly through this passage. It's really helpful. Uh, he commends Jesus' stance towards truth in two ways. He says, first, we learn from Jesus that the truth matters more than my own self. The Jewish leaders and Pilate compromise the truth to save their own skin and to protect their power, but Jesus refused to do that. Jesus Christ was willing to be crucified for the truth. And indeed, truth in this world will often be called to suffer before it's embraced. In a broken world, that's how truth is shown to be true, when it suffers and dies. In Jesus, that's how the truth becomes the source of eternal life, because he dies. And so as we look at Jesus' stance toward truth, we ask ourselves, does the truth matter to me more than my own self? Where do I find myself dismissive of truth claims? Like Pilate, just cutting the conversation short. Pilate's blasé, what is truth, is defensive. When am I defensive? Where, like Pilate, are you most prone to dismissive statements? Uh, sarcasm, cynicism, self-justification. Why are you being sarcastic there about that thing? Why don't you want an answer? What are we running from? Kostenberger again, through Pilate, the evangelist teaches us something quite profound about the connection between Jesus and truth, namely that the more one knows who Jesus is, who is the truth, the more one must become apathetic about the issue of truth if one is to continue rejecting Jesus. As people of the truth, the truth must matter more than our own selves. Apathy about truth is a rejection of Christ. This can't be the only principle we learn, because if we're not careful, this kind of posture, you could imagine, could lead to more violence, right? Um, so that we're so passionate about truth that we're willing to do violence for the sake of truth. Religious wars always contain a mix of hardcore believers and power-savvy opportunists. And so Pilate and the Jewish leaders are more of those opportunists, right? But there's going to be hardcore believers, 
who are going to martyr themselves as they kill other people. And so doesn't this principle still allow for that? And that's why Wolf adds a second point that's just as important as his first. So first, the truth matters more than my own self. Second, the self of the other matters more than my truth. The self of the other. So the truth matters more than my own self, but the self of the other matters more than my truth. Though I may be, I must be ready to deny myself for the sake of truth. I may not sacrifice the other at the altar of truth. Jesus refused to use violence to persuade others who did not recognize the truth in him. Remember, Jesus said that the truth would set us free. But violence kills freedom. The kingdom of truth is the kingdom of freedom, and there cannot be freedom where there is coercion, where there is violence. And so, so many of us are hesitant to assert truth or even engage in the quest for truth because we think it always leads to violence. And so it's better and it's more peaceful to actually just sort of be agnostic. But Jesus proves to us that witnessing to the truth doesn't have to lead to violence. Disciples of his kingdom, the kingdom of truth, they refuse to fight. That's not the way the kingdom of God works. And so that means when we're afraid of pursuing and speaking the truth, what I'm actually afraid of is nonviolence. I don't want to be nonviolent. I'm afraid I can't be nonviolent. We're afraid of speaking the truth, of suffering for it, and not fighting back. But that's the way of Jesus. It's scary. But the thing is, according to Wolf, if we don't relinquish violence, even though we might avoid talk of certain like uncomfortable, like big capital T truths that we just sort of know aren't tasteful, and so we avoid those, the violence still shows up. All the little truths that we enthrone in its place become just as deadly as the big truths. And that feels like where we're at today, right? Um, the problem isn't absolute truth. That's not the problem. Jesus says the truth will set us free. Truth is not our problem. The problem is absolute violence. That's what is wrong. In John 18 and 19, Jesus invites Pilate and us to find freedom by embracing the truth while renouncing violence. And what is the truth? Jesus crucified is the truth. That is the truth. The reason Pilate is so hopeless about discovering truth is because he asked the wrong question. The question, what is the truth, misses the whole point of Jesus. Jesus came so that we might know truth is a who question and not a what question. He should have asked, who is the truth? And that helps direct that glut of information problem. When the data becomes a flood, when what is the truth becomes too overwhelming for us to comprehend, we stand on the rock of Christ who is truth himself. That's where we begin our study of truth, not with facts or experience or reason or logic, not with philosophy or science or doctrine, not even within the beginning in Genesis 1. We begin with Jesus who interprets all truth, the center of history, transforming everything that came before him and comes after him by willingly dying on the cross for our sins. He upends the world's ways. We will, and we will spend an eternity learning more and more 
when we get to heaven, data's not going to shrink. It's going to just expand forever. We're going to learn more and more and know more and more, but we will never get to the bottom of truth because God has no bottom. Who is the truth? The truth is Jesus. And not just Jesus, Jesus standing right there in front of Pilate, flogged, true power draped in weakness, arrested and in chains, beaten hours away from being crucified. The one truth, one true God, the one true truth who reveals his infinite power through his gracious restraint. The truth is Jesus standing right here too in the bread and wine of the communion table that we take every week representing the body and blood of Christ. Our entire lives are interpreted through this sacrifice. But the thing is, Jesus will not coerce you to believe in him. He will not manipulate you. He will not play you. He will not do violence to you. And neither should we. Instead, he allowed violence to be done to himself. That you might know God freely loves you so that you might freely love him. And because he freely loves you and you freely love him, you can freely live and love others while spending your life discovering the truth, even suffering for it. As we move through the Bible over the next couple months, thinking about truth and knowledge, what we will find is that all truth points to this truth. All of it. So that truth is not just facts. Truth is not just science or philosophy or history or psychology or capital or whatever. Truth isn't just a matter of logic or feeling or narrative or experience. It's not just power. Over and above and underneath all that, truth is a person embodied in the incarnate word of God who came and died for you and me. As we think about knowing, about truth, about reality, about bearing witness to reality, always, always think about Jesus. Always. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. This is the truth. The truth is Jesus. And if the truth is Jesus, the thing is, if the truth is Jesus crucified. You don't have to fear the truth, right? All truth is ultimately good. It's gracious. It's loving. It's faithful. It's beautiful. Even hard truths like death by crucifixion are made good in the person of Jesus. And in that case, we don't need to be afraid of the hard truths, the difficult truths. We don't need to be afraid of the flood of information we face every day because the flood is Jesus. It is God washing over us in grace. And so let's listen to its sound. Let's listen to his voice and follow him. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so thankful that you sent your son, the light of the world, into the darkness, and the light has not overcome it. And it's marvelous that the light would shine so brightly in such a terrible scene of an unjust trial against the most 
perfect, the only perfect man to have ever lived. And yet, it's so beautiful and good and wonderful because it's you. And it's your power and it's your grace and your love on display. Father, I pray that today and then over the next couple months, you would free us from fear, um, which is a fear of power and violence and control and manipulation, all those sorts of things. You would help us like Jesus to be free. Perfect love casts out fear. And in that freedom, I pray that it would expand our creativity, our delight, our excitement that the world itself would come alive with glory. Because after Jesus, death has no sting. Violence has no effect. No lasting effect. No effect that can't uh, be transformed and bloomed. And so we ask for eyes to see, um, to see the truth and to see you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.